You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight we have Hebrews. The last week we looked at our introduction of this material and we saw we didn't know the human author, but the divine author certainly is of God, and then, goodness, some very good percentage, maybe maybe a fifth, maybe a sixth, something of that nature, of the words of this letter are words that we could replicate from someplace else, particularly with uh, quotations, uh, most notably from the Psalms. Also, the longest quotation is a block of text in the New Testament from the Old, Jeremiah 31, is retold for us in Hebrews 8. And so what we have is a uh, rearrangement, an appointed arrangement, a directed arrangement of the words of God, uh, repeating highlights from the old, pointing us to our understanding of those, as well as deepening our knowledge and appreciation of the things of Jesus. Uh, we said that we would uh, be using uh, this outline, and we have these available in printed form at the building. I suppose also I could email you one if you needed. Uh, but we have this <coughs> this outline of how all things are greater and better in Christ. And so greater, <coughs> better, uh, superior, whatever word uh, fits that place in, in the dictionary uh, for us, whichever one of these synonyms we want to use. And talking about the uh, place of Christ, <coughs> the position of Christ, the uh, results that are in Christ, uh, greater and better in every respect. And we may note that there is, in the book of Hebrews, a definite line of argument of the, on this better, superior, greater place of Christ. In chapter 1, he's contrasted uh, with the angels, and that'll be tonight's study. Chapter 2, uh, with uh, uh mankind, but he's our greatest man. Then with Moses and his ministry, Joshua and his effect of bringing the people to the promised land. Then to Aaron and the priesthood generally. Uh, in the next chapters, the greater covenant, the <coughs> pardon, the greater promises, the greater mediation, the greater service. In chapter 10, the great greater sacrifice and the greater results. Now, along the way, the Hebrew writer will break off to give exhortations about the need to study or don't fall away or other topics, and then he'll come back to his line of argument, reaching the great conclusion in chapter 12 that we've come to the church of the living God, the uh, general assembly, the church of the firstborn, and all the blessings there. So we said uh, we would not be going as we might in other studies, even though it would be profitable so much word by word, as more argument by argument. And so tonight we want to look and, and take in the entirety, we hope, of the first chapter. Doing it justice, I hope, in time, in, in spending uh, time there, we could unpack things in it for a long time. Uh, did give some thought to taking the first three verses as just tonight's study. But I think we'd be better, we'll be better served uh, by just uh, noting the arguments 
uh, more uh, uh, in a wholesale way, more as an entirety rather than uh, word by word. Uh, but what we'll note in chapter 1, which is where we'll be uh, tonight, we're going to note first we have an opening statement. The opening statement of who Jesus the Messiah really is and some of the great things accomplished by him. And he's going to be set forth for us as God's ultimate spokesman. Now we think about the threefold designation of which we talk about Christ and his ministry. Jesus as prophet, as priest, and king. And uh, the Jesus the prophet and Jesus the priest uh, will be major themes here in the book of Hebrews. It's certainly enough to give us every reason to give our confidence and trust to King Jesus, but the kingly aspect will not quite be as uh, 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 fully developed as prophet and priest. But our opening statement will start him start off with Jesus as God's ultimate spokesman, and then going quickly to compare him with some of God's other greatest spokesmen. When, when God had a message he wanted delivered, what might he do? Well, in the Old Testament, he might often send an angel to be his spokesman, to be his representative. And so we, we'll see that's what the logical connection as to why angels come first. Because Jesus is God's ultimate spokesman, and he is so far beyond even the other spokesman, faithful, glorious spokesman of God that caused people to fear and tremble when they appeared. But Jesus was far beyond. So let's read chapter 1, and we'll see these two parts. The statement, a kind of a summary, uh, more of, a, I guess, a preamble, since it's a summary to start. The preamble here of who Jesus is, and then his compa- a comparison of him to God's other great spokesman. So chapter 1 of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand, of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to many. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God Worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, In the beginning lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens were the work of your hands, and they will perish, but you remain, as they will become 
old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So there's a lot of richness there. We could, as I say, take much more time than we will. But we see this exalted uh, place and position of Jesus. And we see these uh, quotations of old uh, from the Psalms, actually all of them tonight, uh, telling that this is exactly the way that God had planned, exactly what God had predicted. We don't have to swerve out of the lanes that God had laid down in order to uh, reach the goal of understanding Jesus and seeing what was there. That, that those people of old uh, who were faithful to God, they'd been taught, they'd heard, actually they'd sang, because these are from the Psalms, they'd sang these words themselves in the temple and in their synagogues. And now they come to find that this was Jesus that was predicted. It was Jesus who they were looking forward to, that he himself is at the level of God. It's not heresy to say that Jesus is God. It's what God intends for you to say. It's no rivalry to God. It's not a blasphemy like the Jews thought. But it's God who said these things about him. And so well, what we find is as we go through the uh, second part of this tonight, uh, in, in the looking at him in greater than the angels, you know, we're kind of going to need to keep our bookmark in Hebrews but we're going to put a finger back in the Psalter. And we're going to go through Psalm 2 and Psalm 97, and Psalm 104 and Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. Now we're going to go through familiar text to us because uh, we read them from Hebrews, but familiar to the Jews because this is the songs that they had been taught from childhood to sing. These are the words that God had had them uh, to have on their lips so they may take them to their to their hearts and they might believe when these things were accomplished. And so when we have this preamble, when we have this statement that, that comes from the, from the top, comes right from the start about the position of, of Jesus, then we should be prepared to accept that as uh, much as uh, some act like, no, this couldn't be or this is too much. Uh, this is uh, this is beyond the scope of what you can believe about any person, especially some some you know ancient guy that was born in Nazareth. Uh, to us, you know, is, is an old uh, you know long uh, long gone Jewish fellow from a place far away. To the Jews, he was you know uh, uh, just too common of a person from uh, too uh, insignificant a town uh, to. Uh, all those who don't believe, there's all these reasons why they they say that Jesus cannot reach this significance. But the Hebrew writer tells us of this significance, of this position, of this exalted place of Jesus, that he really was God's ultimate spokesman, that he really was the Messiah. So in verse 1, God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets. So God has been speaking with people. 
God had been speaking to them for a long time. God has given us a word that speaks to us today. The prophets were his spokesmen back then. But what did they uh, want to know? Well, they want to know, who is this? What is this uh, that we are prophesying? Uh, It wasn't a matter of their own interpretation, uh, Peter would tell us. But Peter also tells us that these are things in which they longed to look, and so did angels. And God did all kind of messages back then through the people to help the people. As verse 1 continues, there were many portions, or quite literally, many parts. There were many ways. Uh, the King James talks about you know, sundry times and divers' manners uh, in its uh, beautiful old poetry. And so there was a lot of different ways, a lot of different modes, a lot of different people uh, that God spoke through. So uh, that's why you know, we, have, uh, we have our Old Testaments. That's why uh, when we have our full Bibles, that's why it's such a big book, because there's a lot of what words from God from a long time back. But it was all leading to, it was all headed to Jesus. He has now, in these last days, spoken to us in his Son. So we've got the last times. There's a prophecy of Joel in the latter days. God will pour out his Spirit on all mankind. And there's some other passages as well that talk about uh, that this is the last period. Uh, Paul would tell the Corinthians these things. Uh, we're the ones to on whom the uh, ends of the ages have come. We're in the end age. We're in the age of Christ. We're in the age of fulfillment. But we're no longer in the age of promise that something great is coming. We're in the age of fulfillment that something great has come. And it was these days brought by Christ. In these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. So it's that it was a, it was looking forward to Christ. Christ has come, Christ has taught, Christ has worked. And the Hebrew people, even though they lived only 30 years or so, after the time of Christ, they live much more in the world now that we live in than the 1500 years of their forefathers had lived in. From the time of Moses on, they were looking for that prophet who was going to be like Moses. Actually, go back to the very beginning, the first stories of the Bible. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve, from the day they left the garden, they were looking for the one who would come and defeat the serpent, the one who would bruise him on his, on his head, the one who would crush him, the one who would, well, as Romans 16, 20 says, uh, with whom we'd, we'd crush uh, Satan under our feet uh, with and in. Christ. They've been looking for the day of the victory. They've been looking for the day of deliverance. These Hebrew people are now looking back to it. Now they're looking back to something that for the older folks would have happened in their lifetime. Would have happened only 30 years ago and maybe 35 years ago. So if you look back to things now, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, some of us have been to, you know, reunions uh, uh, and commemorations that celebrated things that we were at that, 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 you know, it's been less than 35 years ago. But they were living in that after time, just as we still are. And so they lived in the great after time of Christ, in these last days, when Christ had come. And they're to look back to Christ just as much as we are. We look back now, where everybody else had been looking forward, 
as to what would come. They're now looking back. And they're looking back and they're centering their attention, as chapter 12 will tell us, on Jesus. Because, it says, verse 2 continues, he was appointed the heir of all things. And so all the fulfillments are in Christ. All the promises are through Christ. All the glory and all the, the salvation that's coming, it was coming through Christ. All the promises are through and in him. And so uh, we might have things uh, like uh, the Corinthians were told, and they'd been told this some few years before the Hebrew letter uh, was written. Paul said there to the Corinthians, he said, don't boast in men. Let no one boast in men. First Corinthians 3.21, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or this world or the or life or death or things present or things to come, they all belong to you. Wow, hey, uh, why? Why do we get it all? Because you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And so it's all in, through, and for Christ, and by his grace he's made us participants in it. Let us share in these things. And he can do that because, as verse 2 concludes, through him he made the world. All right, as I say, we got this great preamble, this statement of who Jesus is. Jesus is the creator. That is the plain and regular teaching of the New Testament. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It was through him that God made the world, or Colossians 1, made with him are made for him and by him. And it's no problem for Jesus to be equal to God. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a number of texts you know, from the Psalms and from the book of Daniel where Jehovah God is uh, 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 in audience, holding audience, and someone comes with his power and sits with him. Uh, uh, there's one that he acknowledges. Uh, as an equal, and the Jews had a big problem. How do we, what do we do with these two powers text? There's obviously two with power. There's two who are God here. What do we do with that? You know, we believe that God is one, and yet in these texts, we seem to have two who are God. Well, the, the reason is, uh, solved and, and given in Christ, uh, verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. And so we know that God has glory. No one can see him at any time. No one can see his glory and live. And yet when that radiance was shining, who was the shining? So God's the glory and Jesus is the shining of the glory. He's the brightness of it. He's the radiance of it. He's the beaming light of it. So when Philip would say, he would say, show us the father. And what would Jesus say? Have I been so long with you that you don't know the Father? I and the Father, I and the Father are one. Well, how one are you? Verse 3 continues. The exact representation of his nature. The exact representation of his nature. Now, when you have something that's an exact representation, then you see you've, you've basically got the exact same thing. If you had something and you had the exact exact uh, uh, representation of it, how would you tell which was the 
real one and which one was the copy? If they're exactly the same. Well, that one's not a copy. They're just, it's just the same thing. You got the same thing twice. So he's the exact representation of his nature. Or as Paul would tell the Colossians in what to us must seem to be a great mystery, he's the image of the invisible God. How would you make the image of something invisible? What is the image of something invisible? Well, that's what he is. The image of the invisible one. And so the scripture would affirm, he's God manifest in the flesh. And then he went back in glorified body after the resurrection to sit at the right hand of God. And it says, this is further of his position. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, again, made for him and by him, made through him. And so he upholds it. He keeps it together. This is why we're not deists who think that God, uh, like a a great maker of clocks or some other uh, items that can go on a great deal of time once they've been set right and set in order, uh, but the maker doesn't have to watch over it. The maker's not intimately involved in its, its regular workings after he set it up perfectly. He, he, it says, upholds it. And so he upholds it. He keeps it together. Why does the world work so well in a physical sense? Because somebody made it well and somebody's looking over it. Somebody's doing a little fine tuning, it seems, along the way. Somebody tuned it and somebody watches over it. And so we sometimes wonder, how is it that God can do so much through his providence? We don't see a miracle one, and yet God works things out for the good of those that love him. That Joseph could say to his brothers, yeah, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How can God do that? We don't seem to see a miracle anywhere around. Well, we got the guy who built it and upholds it, and he knows how it works so much better than we do. So when he, and this will be the subject of chapter 10, when he, and and, well, 9 and 10, When he made purification of sin, so who really took care of sin? Biggest problem is taken care of by the great maker. We have the biggest problem in this whole system. The biggest problem in the entire cosmos isn't asteroids. It's not volcanoes. It's not supernovas. Not any kind of physical uh, manifestation of anything. That's not the biggest problem in this cosmos. It's sin. Well, he took care of that. He made purification for sin. John would tell uh, the folks that read the book of Revelation, he's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sin by his blood. Well, he made purification of sin and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has a name above every name. He has all authority on heaven and earth. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits in the position of power. He sits in the position of exaltation. He sits in the position of God himself, because he is. And he's done so much for us. So, this is a pretty good preamble. As I said, I I thought about just extending my remarks on these things, 
and saying, well, that'll be the first study. But I think we who believe this in faith know these things already, right? Uh, we don't need to be explained more of their importance, for, at least for purposes tonight. Uh, he is there. This is his position. And now, having said that, the writer of Hebrews is going to turn to the book of God to prove this. You would think if somebody had this position, that they were exactly like God, exact representation of his nature, if they uh, were in the glorious position of God, if they were the spokesman of God to humanity, if they were the ones who could take care of sin, you would think that God who made a book of prophecies, God who made a book of promises, uh, which his people had been recording and working on those promises since the time of Adam and Eve, you would think in that book of promises and prophecies, there would be quite a bit to support this. Well, it turns out there is, right? So we have that great uh, event uh, right after the resurrection of Christ, the, the night of the resurrection. Those two despondent disciples are leaving Jerusalem and walking on to Emmaus, sad at what had happened after they'd had such high expectations of Jesus. And he then opened the scriptures and he explained to them all the things that were prophesied about him. Well, there's a lot of prophecy about him. And so the Hebrew writer uh, goes to the place that probably uh, the general audience of Christians would have known the best. He goes to the songbook, right? And you think today, how many Christians are there? And this might be sadly so, but uh, it was this case also in ancient times, because he said, hey, you guys need to learn the elementary things again. And so there's a lot of things in the script, book of scriptures we don't know that we should. But what are some things that might be most familiar to us, that most remind us of the faith that we, we have or the faith that we maybe once had, in the case of some of these Hebrew folks? What is something that stirs up the memories, the clearest and the brightest? Oftentimes it's hymns, right? These songs that we've sung from childhood. Well, the Hebrew writer is going to take these people back into the songbook, and he's going to show them, he's going to show Christ's superiority to angels. Why angels first? Again, what was the first claim here in the preamble? That God has spoken first to the prophets in all these different ways, but now in this last time, he's spoken through his son. And so he is going to be first. Our Messiah is our great messenger. He is the prophet. This is the prophet part of prophet, priest, and king. He is the great prophet of God, the greatest prophet of God, the greatest messenger of God. So we, have, we start with a comparison of him and the other messengers, the angelic messengers. And every Jew, except for the most you know, aristocratic and secular Pharisee, they believed in angels, right? And so especially the people that uh, had angels appear to them, they really believed in angels. And the angels always come up in their glory and say, hey, don't fear, don't worry. I'm not here to harm you. I'm here with the message of God. These great messengers of God, for straight from the throne of God to you, Christ is far above them. So here's a greater messenger straight from the throne of God. So verse four, having become much better than the angels, he inherited a more excellent name 
than they. So he became better than them. Now, there's going to be a couple of times in the book of Hebrews talking about Christ learning things. He learned obedience in that which he suffered. Here it is, he became better than the angels and the like. And so we might ask, well, what did he have to learn? Didn't he know everything already? Well, yes, he certainly did in, in the sense of, of knowledge. Uh, he, had, he had all that, but he hadn't experienced it yet. And sometimes we do draw a difference between the knowledge uh, that is experienced versus the knowledge that is just known. And so sometimes somebody will go through a thing and they'll say, well, boy, now I really know about it. Well, maybe they knew the same truth before, but now that they've done it. And so the same thing here with angels. His his name was better than angels, but uh, now it's proven so. Now it's, it's not just a theoretical thing, even though when God says a thing for the future, uh, well, you know, we might think, well, that's uh, that will be. But once it's been fully accomplished, it has been. And so there's a certain, um, you know, uh, higher uh, grade, a uh, higher uh, uh, appreciation of that, not just that that could be or will be, but has been, that, that's been accomplished. So this is how he became better than the angels in that he carried out that which was said. So he has the name greater than angels. Of course, uh, we know as Christians and believe by faith, he has the name above all names, and in his name every knee shall bow. And so there's nothing there's nothing that will be above him. So uh, here he's now been proven and shown to be greater than the angels. This was predicted. No surprise to anybody uh, who knew what was coming. Uh, no surprise in hindsight, because yes, it was re- concealed for a while, but now in Christ revealed. And so we our, our hindsight doesn't need to be surprised uh, because this was foretold. And so we turn first to Psalm 2. So second song in the book, the second song that they had, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we won't do this every single time, but sometimes it is good just to read the other things around this one pull of a lyric, this one line of a song uh, from Psalm 2, 6 through 8. So the verses around it. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I will surely tell the decree of Jehovah. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance, as the very ends of the earth as your possession. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul quotes this same psalm uh, at Pisidian Antioch, and he applies it to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, he applied uh, the, uh, today you are, I declare you my son, today I declare you this, you know, my only begotten son. He applied that to the resurrection day. Uh, we often would probably think about that as, you know, the, the birthday of Christ, the day of his birth. The Apostle Paul said this was proven and shown on the day of his resurrection. But uh, he is he is the, the, the only one of God like that. Uh, uh, how do we know that Jesus is special? Well, how many people God raised from the dead? Uh, Romans 1.4, he showed him to be the Son of God with power uh, through uh, the resurrection. And so God had said things, you know, at the transfiguration, at the baptism. This is my beloved Son. And he proved it 
in the resurrection with great power. And then another, which is a quotation from 2 Samuel, the promise to David that one of his descendants is on the throne. That promise was, I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. So when Jesus said that God is my father, on one occasion the Gospel of John, the Jews recognizing he didn't just mean he's the father, God, like, you know, God is the creator of us all and we're all his children. They understand he was making himself equal with God. And yes, he was. And he could. And he was right. That's what the prophecy was in Second Samuel, the promise to David. All right, so verse 6. And when he, again, brings his firstborn into the world. So again, let's consider again the way that he was brought into the world. Did it to, to which angel did he say? None, but he said to Jesus, let all the angels of God worship him. And so the angels were told to worship Jesus when he, he came. And so that's a quotation of Psalm 97 and verse 7. Now, in our English Bibles, which follow the Masoretic text, uh, which is a Hebrew text, uh, from actually from the 11th century in, in Russia, of all places, the oldest uh, and most uh, uh, you know, highest quality text uh, that we found in the ancient world, uh, it doesn't say that. The Hebrew text says, uh, worship him all you gods. But the Septuagint, which was the translation commonly used by uh, the, the Christians, or the, the Greek-speaking Jews and then the Christians, and was well known to the ancient world, it had said, uh, worship him, all you angels. And so this is a quotation from the Septuagint version of the, uh, of the Book of Psalms, uh, the more common uh, songbook of the day. Uh, but it, it, proves, it proves here uh, that, you know, the, as we'll say back in chapter 7, or later in chapter 7, the, without controversy, the greater shall serve the younger, or excuse me, the greater will, will serve the, or the older serve, the, the younger serve the older, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And so here the angels, they're called upon to uh, worship uh, God, uh, Jesus as God. And so that, that's a text against idolatry. And the people thought they had all these, um, you know, various gods and various ones that were worthy of honor and respect. And that text in, in the Psalms says that anyone with any power, if you, if, if you think you got something powerful, they need to worship God too. Because God is above all things. Above, he's, you know, he's the God of gods. And so uh, here, the angels or whatever, whatever high thing you got, uh, cast all that away to worship God. Now, so Jesus comes. He is the son of God. That's verse 5. He's to be worshipped by all. That's verse 6. Now the angels, they're not the son and they're not worshipped. Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Again, quotation from the Psalms. This time Psalm 104. And uh, these two lines are, you know, common of Hebrew poetry. They basically mean the same thing. It's just an expansion on it. So the angels are ministers. He makes his angels winds 
he makes his ministers to be flames of fire, uh, or um, in the King James, you have uh, their spirits. Um, and so they're powerful. The angels are powerful. Uh, they are sent by God. Uh, they could appear in flame. Well, think about the burning bush. We find out that was an angel of God uh, there uh, so that the flame would burn, and in that case, not consume. But uh, uh, God sends his angels. Uh, he, he sends them on missions. He gives them tasks to do, and they go do that. Now, I know there's a, uh, and if, if a person is humble, no matter how high up they are in, in an in a organization, that they'll go do things. They'll go take care of tasks. But here it's talking about position and rank. If you get up high enough in an organization, you no longer get sent on task. You send on task, right? You don't get sent anymore. You get up high enough. You don't get sent no more. You do the sending. Well, what's Jesus? He's the sender, right? He sends. He's not the sendee. Yes, he came to earth, but that wasn't him being sent. That was him coming in cooperation with the Father uh, for us. And so these angels, they get sent out to do tasks. Maybe they're important tasks. Maybe they're, they're glorious tasks. Maybe they're, they're really uh, powerful uh, things. Only a powerful person could take care of the task. Uh, but still, uh, they're, they're task carry-outers, uh, not task uh, senders and assigners of jobs. Verse 8, but of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yeah. If you sit on the throne, you don't get sent out. You do the sending. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. So there's the glory and eternality uh, of his power. Again, we, we're continuing on there with the, uh, uh, with the quotes from Psalms. Uh, now we're in Psalm 45. This is a six and seven. Uh, it continues on into verse nine. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And so here is, here is Christ. He's on a throne forever. He has an eternal position. You know, the angels on their assignments is glorious and as powerful as they might have been. Uh, in their, the things they were commissioned to go do, they didn't have a permanent station like this that was forever and ever. So here's Christ in his permanent station at the top. And again, I just, it just floors me to think about these Jewish folks singing this. All right, let's sing number 45. And when they got over to sing number 45, they're singing, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness. You've hated lawlessness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. God gave somebody an eternal throne? What, what's that? The Christians have an answer. The Christians know who that is. The Christians know who sits with God, by God, as God. And the Jews who sang this in their synagogues didn't know that. It was a mystery to them until it occurred and the faithful believed and the unfaithful did not. So God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. God has exalted you and taken care of you and blessed you and personally done for you more than for any other. Of course, I always remember reading this and 
thinking about this oil of gladness and the like, uh, couldn't help but think of, you know, all the time, Psalm uh, 23, which for us, he pours oil on our head and makes our cup overflow. And we get goodness and mercy that all the days of our life, we get to dwell in his house forever. Our blessing in faithfulness to God is similar to the blessing that God gave to Christ. But Christ is on a whole different level of it, right? He's on the throne. He's the head. Uh, We get to participate as he then shares in those blessings and helps us out. Now, another psalm. All right, let's turn to number 102. Get Get your psalters out. Turn to number 102, and let's read there. You, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Okay, creator God. We we worship the creator God. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Yeah. Uh, They declare your glory, right? All right. But these others, it says, they will perish, but you remain. So there again, the permanency, the permanency of the things of Christ. They will all become old as a garment, like a mantle, a coat that you'd wear on the outside. You will roll them up. What do you do when you have this cape? It's no longer the season to wear it or it's too old to use. You roll it up so you can store it. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you're the same, and your years will not come to an end. So here is now Psalm 102 applied to Christ as well. Again, Christ is creator. Christ is eternal. Christ is always there forever and ever. The other stuff just gets old like clothes. You know, that's one thing that bugs me. I get a nice I get a nice shirt. I get a nice pair of something else. I won't mention what. I wear it and it gets comfortable. And after a while, the wife says, you need to get rid of that and get some new stuff. It's like, no, I don't. This is just fine. I like this. It's just the way it is. And she's like, nope. We need that. That's got to go. And the other day I was watching something. I don't know what it was. And they were talking about clothes, of all things. And, and they were talking about how that uh, most, maybe it was an advertisement of dress shirts or something. But they said that dress shirts, even dr- nice dress clothes, they said that they're really only made for about 35 wears. And I thought, first thing, you ain't been to my house, right? But when they make these things, even nice dress clothes, they only make them to, they expect them to be used about 35 times. And after that many times being worn and being laundered and like, (coughs) you're going to start seeing, you know, buttons break or buttons, the buttons start to come off. You're going to see fraying of the cuffs and the collar won't be what it's supposed to be. Stop looking at my collar. Don't do that. Uh, But 35 times, I thought, man, uh, I don't expect you to play stuff that much. But stuff wears out. You can't keep stuff forever and ever. You just can't do it. I have in my possession. I can't wear it no more. Don't laugh. I have a T-shirt from 1987. I, I know it's from 1987 because it says class of 87 on it. And has the name of everybody in my high school class who is scheduled to graduate that year. Has every single one of the names of our people on it. And uh, no, I can't wear it. But it's it's pretty it's pretty thread 
threadbare in any way. Um, but uh, no, I still keep it. But after a while, you just can't keep clothes. Well, that's like every physical thing, right? You pay how many thousands, tens of thousands for a car. This will be the last car I ever buy. Unless you're old, it ain't. Um, your, your nice car wears out. Oh, I got the leather. Uh, that leather will wear forever. Uh, one time we bought a nice set of leather couches, and they lasted at our house for almost 14 years. But it was time for them to go one day, too. No matter what you buy, no matter what quality, no matter what physical thing it is, you're going to roll it up, and you're going to change it like a set of clothes. You're going to throw it out. Everything that you buy will eventually be your garbage. It just will be. Or it'll be the stuff your kids have to get rid of. But not God. Kind of hinting at what's coming at the end, which is Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, and forever. We'd already been told in the Psalms, you are the same. Your years will not come to an end. And verse 13, our final quote from the book of Psalms, now we'll turn to Psalm 110. The one that's, I think this is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament to the New. It says, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand and tell him make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here is the highest place of honor, that the great God is doing things for him, to honor him. God honors him and says, sit down and rest. I'll take care of it for you. That's a place of respect. That's a place of prestige. That's an honor. And it was said to one. It was said to Christ. The great blessing is we're allowed a crown of life and we can come participate in the victory and we can come celebrate with him. But again, the angels, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those inherit salvation? Hey, good news. We got some helpers on our side. We got the angels of God. But we also have Jesus, the greatest one. But if you're comparing Jesus and the angels, there's no comparison. And so that'll be the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Whatever it is that you wish to compare Jesus to, there's just no comparison. And he's the one in whom we trust. And he's the one who delivers salvation for us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.